build for God's kingdom. And so to do that, um, we're going to look at what is an interesting, and my guess is, as you look at it, it might uh, sound like somewhat of a bizarre story uh, here in Revelation chapter 5. And so let's read this together. This is written by John, and he says this as he describes a vision that he had. He said, then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowl, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be the kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we have gathered together this morning as sisters and brothers in Christ, looking for a word from you. Sometimes, Lord, your scripture is clear, and sometimes it feels incredibly murky. So we pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning because we know that all Scripture is God-breathed, and so we know that you have a word for us today. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So here at ZPC, my guess is you're familiar with our mission statement, which is that we've been called together by God to make disciples and to release them for service in our broken world. Good. 
And of course, since the very genesis of ZPC, the word disciple has been a critical component of what we do. We, we do long, we, we long to be disciples, those who follow Jesus. We want to grow in our sense of discipleship. And of course, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we are hopeful that we will continue to be able to make disciples of others as well, just as Jesus told us to. And there's a lot of different ways to look at what it means to be a disciple, but one of the ways that we've been talking about it lately is, is this sense it means to be shaped more like Jesus, and it means that we build for God's kingdom. To be shaped more like Jesus, as we said a lot in the fall, that our lives are becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters into them, and we become more like him. That's what Second Corinthians tells us. And now we're saying, well, what does it look like then for us to build for God's kingdom? I mean, this seems like a pretty massive, important piece of our call as disciples. And we said the very first week that we hold this in tension. Because, uh, of course, ultimately it is up to God to make sure that his kingdom is going to come on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we pray it. Our prayer is a sign that we realize that it's going to be God who helps his kingdom come without question. And it won't come fully until Jesus returns. But we also said that for some reason... God has decided to use his people to help to build for that kingdom. God wants to work through us. And so again, we see in 2 Corinthians where it says that the work we do will not be in vain. We believe that somehow, and we may not always know exactly how, somehow God is going to use us to build up his coming kingdom. And so the work that we do is critical even now. And so we've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks. And, and this morning, as we've been t- talking about the kingdom, I thought, well, one of the things I want to look at is the, is the book of Revelation. Because oftentimes, the book of Revelation shows us what things are going to be like in the future. What things are going to be like in God's coming kingdom. But Revelation is a little bit of a murky and mysterious book. I mean, I don't know how many of you just thought, wow, that seems really normal as I read Revelation 5. But if it did seem normal to you, then I've got a couple counselors who might um, want to be helpful for you. The truth is that this vision is kind of strange. And one of the things that I say, right, is if you run into somebody and they say, hey, I have got all of Revelation figured out. I have it all figured out. You should turn around and run. Because that person's probably needs to work through some things, right? I mean, because it is incredibly mysterious, and I think it's supposed to be mysterious. There is a certain amount of it that is supposed to be beyond our grasp. And yet, that said, it's in there, and I do think that there is much of Revelation, all of Revelation, if we look at it carefully, there are those things that we can glean from it that, as strange as it may sound, may actually really be real in our lives today. So just a bit of context. Most of you probably know this, but if not, I'll tell you anyways. One of the followers of Jesus, of course, was John. And John, when he writes this vision out, he is on the island of Patmos. And it's kind of like a prison island. It's like Alcatraz, if you will. And he's been put on this island because of the fact that he is a follower 
of Jesus. And so he is a disciple of Christ, and he is stranded uh, on this prison island of Alcatraz called Patmos. And as he's there, he's writing a letter. And he's writing a letter. This is in kind of common day or current day Turkey. He's writing a letter to other churches. Many of those churches are being persecuted or have been persecuted. Some were being persecuted right then. Some very likely were going to be persecuted into the future. And so he's writing a letter that he is hopeful is going to encourage them in some way. Just my guess is, as he's hopeful, it will encourage him as well. And so as he's there on this island, he has this vision. Right? And this vision has kind of been described, if you will, in some sense as a, as a curtain. The curtain between heaven and earth has been kind of moved aside so that, so that he can see what's going on in heaven. Or another way to say it, he can see what's going on in the future coming of God's kingdom. It's what the Celtics would call kind of a, a thin place where the difference between uh, heaven and earth seems almost to be nil. And so he's, he's looking out there and he's seeing what is going on. And it begins then with the scroll. And there have been many who have questioned what exactly the scroll means. And so people go on and on about what they think the scroll is and what it contains. It, had, it was written on both sides, which is kind of interesting to people because usually scrolls are only written on one side. And so, you know, scholars can get caught up in these things for, for, for many more pages than they should. And But one of the things, though, or a common theme, it seems, is that that the scroll has a mystery in it that is there to be solved. It It has the answer, if you will, that it's going to unveil what God's plan is. That it's going to unveil the way in which God is going to set the world right. That it's going to illuminate the truth. And so if you knew that that was what the scroll was, John is there and he's very excited. He can't wait. He wants to see what the scroll is going to look like. And then the angel says, who is worthy to open up the scroll? There are seven kind of seals to it. And and, and so you can see if you were there in that vision, the buildup of anticipation. Who is worthy? And then the angel says, no one. And John begins to weep and weep. This isn't just one or two tears trickling down someone's cheek. This is weeping. In the Greek, there's just this sense of just immense crying. Which, quite frankly, kind of makes sense. If you're John and you are stranded on this island and you are persecuted and you are far from where you grew up, far from your family, far from your friends, you can't hear what's going on, you have no idea if you're stranded and you did all of this, you thought for Jesus and you were ready to see how is this going to end? Is there any hope? Where, where is it that I can place my trust? And there are the answers in the scroll and you think soon I'm going to know it's all worth it. And then they say nobody can open it, you would begin to weep. And I love it because in some ways, it's almost like he's not just weeping for him. He's weeping for those who have gone before and those who will come after. Those who, for one reason or another, perhaps they feel like they, 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 there's a sense of being absent from God or they're wondering where God is or they're saying, how is it that this is all going to be reconciled amidst all of this brokenness and pain? And it's like he's crying not just for himself, but he's weeping for us as well. So John weeps until 
the elder says to him, John, weep no more. For someone has been found who is worthy to open it up, and it's the Lion of Judah. And so if you're John, then you're sitting there and you're waiting. You are waiting. It sounds like that's exactly right. That's who could tear apart a seal. No question about it, right? Lions can tear apart anything, right? And so he's excited. He's looking for this great lion. And all of a sudden, what comes but not a lion but a lamb? And not just any lamb, a diminutive lamb. In Greek, it's a small lamb. And not just any lamb, and not just a small lamb, but a small lamb that has been slaughtered. In other words, this small lamb that has been slaughtered is, of course, depicting Jesus Christ himself, who was slaughtered, who was killed on our behalf. But you have to admit that this is not what you would have expected. It's very much like those of us who were here last week, the 30 or so of us who were here last week. But I'm sure the rest of you listened to it on the podcast, am I right? Thanks, thanks, Claude. When we talked about the fact that Jesus told this great parable, right, about what's the kingdom of God like? Oh, and we're expecting, you know, something massive like a, like a cedar from Lebanon. And he said, oh, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that then ultimately becomes a shrub, right? And apparently it was making the ZPC network that I kept using the word shrub so many times. So uh, I'm going to keep using it. So mustard shrub, right? It's like, and so there's Jesus and he's, or there's John. He's expecting something like a lion and he hears it is a slaughtered little lamb, And it is this great reminder yet again, and we have to hear this because in our thick heads, it does not make sense to us, that the way in which God brings about his salvation, his plan, is not through strength and through might, but is so often through his sacrifice, so often through gentleness and meekness and grace and love. That this is the plan, as strange as it may sound to us. Then we're told that there is this great bowl. I told you this is a very interesting uh, passage. There's this great bowl that is brought in, and it's full of incense, right? And so you can kind of picture, if you will, this great bowl, and you can see kind of smoke or whatever it is of incense beginning, kind of just kind of wafting up into the air. And what is in that bowl? Our prayers. What an intriguing image that is. Think about this for a moment. What John is kind of revealing to us in this vision is that the prayers of God's people, that God loves to breathe them in, they smell incredible to God. That he loves to kind of breathe in, that he delights in the prayers of his people. And why? Because as we've talked about before, what is prayer at its very essence? Prayer is a statement that we are not in control and that we believe God is in control. That is why we pray. And God loves to know how loved he is by his children. And so the next time you pray, think about the way that God is not just hearing them. He is smelling, he is breathing in your prayers. 
Someone else has said this is a clear sign of the umbilical cord, if you will, between earth and heaven. That there is this connection again between what we are doing here and heaven. That there is this intricate connection between what we are doing here and God's coming kingdom. And at this point then, the singing begins. They begin to sing and to sing and to sing. And from the very beginning of our faith, singing is always a critical part of what it is that we do. I don't know for sure why, but there's just something about the song that causes our hearts to soar. And when your head is struggling, the song can help to stir up your heart. John Calvin, one of the founders kind of of Presbyterianism, was very much more comfortable with the intellectual aspect of faith than the emotional aspect of faith. But even he, as he looked out over his church in Strasbourg, I think somewhere in, in Switzerland, either Strasbourg or in France, Strasbourg or in Geneva, he looked out over his congregation and he said, they, their worship was cold and heartless. I'm just going to keep moving on. But that's what he said about his church. And what he said was, you know what needs to happen? We need some music to try to liven these people up. And so he began to bring music. Music does something. I was thinking about this yesterday. Yesterday, I've been getting to train now for the mini uh, marathon. And so yesterday, I had kind of a long run. And so I was uh, about a third of the way through the long run. And I, I, I called Megan uh, about a third of the way through. And I said, man, I'm just tired, you know. I don't feel like doing this. I think I'm just going to quit. And she said, and she's so sweet. She's like, Jerry, just do it. And so... Um, I appreciated that. Um, that's why I married her. And so, and so I said, all right, fine, you know. And so I, I started going. But I've been listening to a podcast, right, which is great. Sometimes that really works. But I was so tired. I said, okay, i got to listen to some music. So I turned on some music. And, and, and literally, I mean, this is, this is true. All of a sudden, I just began, my, my spirit began to pick up. And it began to change my thoughts. And it began to change what I was doing physically. Most of us know this, perhaps. You know, when you begin to hear music, it just kind of, it propels you a little bit. There's another element. And so song does that in worship. And so we began to sing. And then, as he says in verse 11, and then, then more and more, myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands began to join in. And not just others, but creatures, all the creatures of the world began to praise God. Now, I told a couple of staff members this week that what I was thinking about doing was splitting up the congregation into different animals and to have them begin to make animal sounds that were praises to God. But I thought this is going to be the most awkward worship service of all time, which almost makes it worth it, quite frankly. I won't do that, but just picture everything and people worshiping from the top of their heads to, their, to the ends of their toenails, worshiping God. And then we're told that as they're in the midst of that worship and perhaps as that worship is beginning to wind down, that all of a sudden there was this resounding, Amen. So be it. What an intriguing passage. And one of the questions, of course, after listening to a scripture passage like that is, what in the world does that vision have to do with us here in central Indiana in 2019? What are we supposed to do with a passage like this? I'm glad that you asked. 
So there are, of course, many who have opinions. Lots of people have opinions. Um, one of those people is Gordon Fee. Uh, Gordon Fee's a commentator. And here's what Gordon Fee says when it comes to this particular passage. He says, readers of this passage who themselves fail to join in with the heavenly host are listening to the text only cerebrally and not with the exhilaration intended by John so that his readers are themselves drawn into the heavenly scene as part of the worship. In other words, Gordon Fee saying we should be joining in as we hear this, we should be joining in in some way that our hearts should begin to join in. Uh, ben Witherington says that whenever we read this and all of Revelation that we should have a certain amount of awe and wonder when it is that we come to worship, that we, as we gather together, there should be this sense of awe and wonder, this exhilaration that we should be moved as we worship together. And my guess is that there are some of us for whom that is the case. And when you come in here, your heart is moved and there is a sense of awe and wonder. And that is wonderful. But for others of us, I have a sneaking suspicion that that may not be the case. And that there may be times, perhaps many times, when coming here or being together, it's okay, but it feels a bit like drudgery at times. Okay, that was okay. Wasn't that great. Could have done something different. And you're probably right. And there's many reasons for that. Some of us are just grouchy. That's just the way it is. Some of us don't want to, and that's fine. Others of us think, well, you know what? We would really... I could worship like that if we had an organ. That's what would do it. Others of us, probably more of those at the 1030, would say, well, we could really do it if the guitar was louder. If the drums banged just a little bit harder, then we could worship. I don't know what the reason may be for you, but I, I, I realize that I could just stand up here and just say to you, just come on, people. Act like this matters to you. And quite frankly, when I was growing up in the Pentecostal church, they would oftentimes say that. They would say, let's start worshiping God. And then they would say, clap your hands to God. And then they'd say, raise your hands to God. And they would wait for you to do it. And I remember being the recipient of that. And I remember stuffing my hands in my pockets and just saying, you try to make me worship Jesus. And I don't want to do that to you. Because I know it's not that helpful. So the question then is, for those of us who want to have that sense of worship, who want to have a certain amount of sense of awe and wonder, it doesn't mean that you need to be crying, doesn't mean that you need to run around or raise your hands, you certainly can, but, but who want our hearts to be moved in some way, how exactly do we get to that place? And as I thought about that a little bit more, and I thought about this passage, I was reminded of something about John, which is that he is in a very unique place. And by that, I don't necessarily mean Patmos, so certainly that is a strange little prison island. I mean, he is in a unique place in his faith journey. Remember, John was there because he was a follower of Jesus, which means it takes a lot of faith to be willing to be sent off to prison where you may never connect again with all of your family. It takes somebody who is pretty committed to Jesus Christ to do that. It takes somebody whose whole life is really oriented around Jesus, whose life has been shaped around Jesus, whose desire is to be with Jesus. In other words, it takes somebody who's not just kind of worshiping or orienting their life around God on a particular morning, let's just say Sunday morning. It takes 
take somebody like John who says that he is really worshiping throughout all of the week. It takes that kind of person, it seems to me, to be able to come into a public place of worship or service and be able to worship in the way that John describes. In other words, what I'm saying is this. If we want to be able to have some sense of worship and when we come in, we feel that our heart is moved, that we are stirred, that there is a sense of awe and wonder, uh, surprisingly enough, the place to begin that is probably not with how we worship on Sunday morning. It's probably with asking the question, how are we worshiping Monday through Saturday? That you can't expect to worship one way all through the week and then come in here and be overwhelmed by a sense of awe and wonder of God. Here's what I mean. Several weeks ago, several, I don't remember how long ago, it was a couple months ago maybe, I was talking about my, uh, my incredible cross-country career and how when I was a junior in high school, um, how Brad and I, my good buddy, how we would always, uh, when we were practicing during the week, we would always run far enough behind the, the, the rest of the runners uh, as we were practicing uh, that they couldn't see us. Uh, and right about the time that they couldn't see us, we would, we would dart off to where my girlfriend's grandparents lived and then we would go there and we would eat uh, snacks and, and, and drink water and just kind of hang out, uh, you know, and, until, uh, you know, about 25 minutes or so, as I recall, until they had run the bulk of it, and then we knew where we could shortcut and catch them at the end, uh, and they wouldn't even know that we hadn't been there. You know, we just probably splashed a little water, and, and, and then we were good to go. It was great. It was phenomenal. Uh, but now, here's what's interesting, of course, again, is that on Saturdays, uh, when everyone would come together, they would come from the north, the south, the east, and the west to gather around at the meet. What we discover, we're a little slow, but what we began to realize is that all the rest of the folks that were there, not right during the run perhaps, but afterwards, they all seemed full of joy and excitement. There was this exhilaration over how they had done, how they had excelled. It was remarkable. And if you could have looked at them and then panned right to Brad and I, we were on the ground gasping for breath, thinking that, that we might just die and what an absolute nightmare life was. And the point, of course, is this, is that you can't spend, you know, if you're a cross-country runner, you can't spend the whole week doing nothing when it comes to running and then just show up at the day of the meet and think that you're just going to feel amazing and that things are going to go wonderful and you're going to be full of life and joy. Do you, are you making the connection? And the truth, of course, is that it's not easy because there's lots of distractions, on Wednesday, I asked the staff, I said, tell me, what, uh, what are those things that we oftentimes worship? What are the things that we idolize? And they said many different things, but, but repeat offenders were things like our children, uh, our appearance, how we compare to our neighbors and to others, uh, our careers, in a sense, or our own self-sufficiency, that we can do this on our own. And we spend much of the week oftentimes running after, chasing after those things. I love what Eugene Peterson, he never pulls punches. He says, he says this about what we worship. Uh, he says this, Steve, we got this. He says, failure to worship God consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are, in turn, 
alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. If there is no center, there is no circumference. I want to say that one again. If there is no center, there is no circumference. Meaning, if your center is in God, you will be everywhere. And people who do not worship God are swept into a vast restlessness, epidemic in the world, with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. In other words, when our lives are not centered around God, when they are centered around so many other things, scattered and obsessed with whether or not our children are going to make the team or make the grade, centered and obsessed with whether or not we are going to move up that corporate ladder, concerned and and worshiping whether or not everything that we have and own, how does it compare to everybody else with these thoughts that we can do this on our own. We don't need anybody, nonetheless, God. When we spend our whole whole week doing that we cannot then pop in here at 9 or 10 30 and have the expectation that in a moment we are going to be able to just worship God in awe and wonder in other words ain't no organ no guitar no prayer no scripture passage read no prayer and not even as much as it pains me to say no sermon is going to cut through a week of you worshiping everything but God and then you come in here and everything begins to change in a moment ain't no organ No guitar, no prayer, no preaching, nothing can cut through a week of us worshiping everything but God and then expect to be able to come in here and in a moment our hearts are going to be lifted up to the majestic Lord. It will not happen. Now that doesn't mean that God can't use this worship to wake us up. But it does mean that if we want to begin to have sustained, deep, heartfelt worship, then perhaps we need to stop waiting for things up here to change or for better sermons. This is as good as it gets. It means that we need to check our hearts throughout all of the week. And that's why, as I said a couple months ago, and as I want to repeat so that we get this, that's why... We want the elements of what goes on in here to go with you during the week as ways of remembering. We're going to have a baptism here at 1030. And remember, we use very normal water, not special, not holy water from the Jordan. Because when you turn on your sink at home, it is not Jordan River or, or water from the River Jordan coming out. It is normal Indiana tap water. And so that's the same water. So when we do that, we want you to go home. We want you to turn on your water. And we want you to remember that you have been claimed by Christ in your baptism. And to ask, what difference does that make? It's why, again, we use a very normal table. So that tomorrow, when you go and you're with coworkers and you're sitting around at a table someplace, you will remember that the same presence of the Lord that is around that table when we break bread and drink of the cup is the same presence of the Lord that is with you right then. What difference does that make in your life? It's why we want to sing songs that you remember. I can't tell you how many times in my life when I have been struggling. The song, It Is Well With My Soul. A song that we, I have sung since I was this big in churches, including this one, begins to bubble up inside of me. And I am reminded of the fact that Christ is with me. 
It is why, as I repeatedly point out, we have this massive window behind me. I know it distracts many of you, and that annoys me at times. But what I also know, what is more important than whether or not Jerry Deck gets annoyed, is the fact that you will always look out and you will see the world through the lens of the cross. Because I do not want us to be detached. Here is what I believe. That the more often you begin to think about the worship in here when you are out there, it begins to change what you are centered on and what you are oriented around when you go out into your everyday life. And the more that you are centered and oriented and begin to worship God when you are out there, the more that you will come in here and begin to worship with a sense of awe and wonder. And the more that we begin to do that, the more we begin to replicate and reflect what is going to happen in the coming kingdom of God. And just like in verse 11, it seems to me that a people of God who are worshiping God in here with the sense of awe and wonder and the people who are worshiping God out in their lives, that there will be those who will be drawn to that. Because trust me when I tell you this, there are so many who are chasing after the latest advertisement, the latest slogan, the latest siren, and are running this way and that. And they are looking for a group of people who say we are rooted in the center of Jesus Christ himself. So brothers and sisters, may we continue to worship in here and as we go out. And when we gather together, my hope and my prayer is that we will do so in a way in which the songs that we sing will soar up and will delight Jesus Christ himself. That the prayers that we pray will go up and will begin to fill the nose of Christ himself. That when we conclude each Sunday morning, that we will say amen with such conviction that the curtain between heaven and earth, between earth and God's kingdom, will begin to tear just a bit more. May that be our prayer. And God's people said, amen. Amen? Amen.